The second Bible reading comes from Acts 28, verses 31, verses 30 and 31. I have multiple mics. I have a lapel mic. I have this mic. Oh, this is great. So let's hear the word of God this morning once again. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, with all, with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, it's a special joy for me to be with you all this morning. I took a worship class a number of years ago with a, a renowned worship scholar named Hughes Oliphant Old, and it was a doctoral seminar on church architecture. And in that doctoral seminar, we studied a, a, an early uh, Christian church um, a, a structure called Dura Europa. I think it's the earliest sanctuary that we have. And it's a, it's a house that was converted into a place of worship. And so the setting that we're in right now actually is much closer to uh, what you would have experienced as a New Testament Christian. Um, and um, it's also just a wonderful setting to, uh, to worship together. So it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, as we said in the time of introduction, Melody and I came with our four children at the time to New York in 2018. And um, we, it was about this time that we arrived the summer of 2018. But several years before that, uh, one of our children was in a, a period of, of steep medical decline. And um, it, it was to the point where I would be with him or Melody would be uh, with him uh, many months out of the year in the hospital. And as a result of this medical decline, uh, we had chosen to uh, teach him at home uh, using a variety of different curricula and um, some online courses. But it came to the point where the hospitalizations became so frequent, it was actually difficult to keep a, a clear record of what he was doing in school. And so uh, to manage this, we switched from, from uh, one set of curricula to another and actually used uh, great courses so that while he was in the hospital, we could at least keep track of what particular courses he listened to and, and use their guide on the assignments. And his health had declined so much that we didn't even know what his future would hold, if, if college would be a possibility, um, if, if he would even uh, survive in the next several years. So we were trying to be faithful in educating him. But at the same time, we were making those adjustments. There was some concern that we as parents had because it seemed like we were losing control of the education of our child. And it's something that we prized. It's something that we, we took seriously as our responsibility. So we wondered, how is this going to prepare him for what's coming? Is this going to be adequate? Is it going to be substantial? And yet, uh, there didn't seem to be too much choice about it. And then there would come those awkward moments. Um, you know, parents with children, one of the first things they'll ask about is, well, where do your children go to school? Um, 
And then you try to explain, you know, well, my child's doing great courses. <laughs> like, what kind of parent are you? <laughs> you know, that your, your child is doing great courses. And there could be some embarrassment or some feeling of uneasiness about that, the kind of quizzical looks that you get. As we think about our life, we often find ourselves, I think, in situations that did not turn out the way that we thought they would. And that can lead to all sorts of emotions, thoughts, and concerns. So that can lead to a sort of uh, embarrassment or shame. Um, you, you find yourself in a job, uh, in a living situation, in a broken relationship, something like you, you, it could be any, anything could happen. But at the end of the day, you feel embarrassed. This did not turn out the way that you wanted it to turn out. You can feel a sense of shame with that. You can also feel a great uneasiness. How will this impact the future? What does this mean for me? And this morning as we think about uh, this sermon title, The Amazing Providence of God, it is the doctrine of God's providence which really comforts every person uh, when it comes to how we enter into these situations where things did not turn out as we had expected. It's a dangerous thing to use the etymology of a word to gain insight into the word. Um, Preachers are renowned for doing this and it makes them look smart sometimes. But um, linguists warn against that. You should look at how a word is actually used in context to to discern its meaning. But sometimes it works. And when you think about the word providence, it actually does work, at least to a degree. Um, These two Latin roots, pro and vid, to, to, to see before. Uh, it's, it's the root word also from the root concepts for the um, idea of provision, um, providing something for someone in need. When we think about God's providence, um, it's, it's with a view to God working out all things for his own glory and for the good of his people. So there's a question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What are the works of providence? The works of providence are God's most holy, wise, and powerful works, preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions. Most holy, wise, powerful works, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This idea of preservation is really important, isn't it? Because that's what's really happening when you're feeling embarrassed or unraveled or ashamed or uncertain. Am I going to make it? It's kind of at the core of these concerns. And this idea of governance is comforting because though our emotions will go up and down, the idea that one outside of us who is all-powerful, as we celebrated in this song, Behold Our God, one who is on a throne is actually in control to govern the way things work out. This is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture. And one of my professors, when I was a seminary student many years ago, said it was his favorite question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. As we look at this particular passage today, what we see is an example of this amazing providence of God at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. So first I wanted to share with us how we see this providence at work in this particular passage in Paul's own life. 
So in Acts chapter 28, we read that, 28 verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. The there that is mentioned, where is the there? Paul is in Rome. It's the first place where the there is. The second place that there is, is a home. We don't exactly know the home, but it's not a normal type of home. It's a home where he's under confinement. Uh, He's under house arrest. So he's actually guarded in this home. This is referred to as Paul's Roman imprisonment, his first Roman imprisonment. And um, it is still a type of confinement that is used today in criminal justice, um, home incarceration. It's a type of confinement that we have some resonance with post-COVID-19, right? home incarceration. We had to stay at home. So that's where Paul is. And he's there for two years at his own expense because another aspect of God's providence is Paul had, had his own vocation as a, a tent maker and was able to live out of his own means. And in this particular crisis, that was a great provision to advance what God is doing in his life and what God is doing in the church. What's interesting to consider is Paul wanted to be in Rome. Paul desired to be in Rome. And he wrote to the Roman church years prior to this and said, I can't wait to get to you. And he said two things. uh, We said many things in this letter of the Roman church, but with regard to what we're speaking about, he said, first, I want to get to you and I really want to tell you about Jesus. I'm just longing to do this, to preach the good news of Jesus to you. Now, of course, Rome, Rome was already an established church. Paul did not establish the church in Rome, and that lets us know that the good news about Jesus is something we always need to hear, not just one time, but he's to inform all that we do. So Paul said, I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he's speaking actually to Christians when he says that. But the second thing he said is, I want to establish a base there in Rome so that from you, I can then go to Spain. So Paul was uh, somebody who was always on the move, and he didn't see himself as a regular church pastor. He saw himself, um, and and God had called him to go and plant multiple churches. So he wanted to establish a base in in Rome that they could, through their means of support, send him to Spain. So this is Paul's plan, to get to Rome for this purpose. Now, we don't know how Paul himself imagined that he was going to get to Rome, but we can assume that it would be by, quote, ordinary means you know, um, a, a horse and a buggy, um, uh, so, something like that. Okay, but how, in fact, does he get to Rome? He gets to Rome because one day after Paul had left Ephesus, where he spent um, more than two years, he goes to Jerusalem. And apparently when he, gets in, when he goes to Jerusalem, apparently he has taken with him somebody from Ephesus, a man named Trophimus, the Ephesian. And um, Trophimus, the Ephesian, is a Gentile, and Paul is a Jew, and he's in Jerusalem. And Paul is seen uh, walking around town with Trophimus, the Ephesian. And the assumption of the leaders is that Paul is taking Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple, and they look at it as a great violation of their religion, their national identity, and even their law. And they... um, whoop up charges and incite uh, fury against Paul. And it leads to a series 
of confinements, of appearances before magistrates of different levels. Ultimately, it leads to Paul uh, appealing to Caesar. And so then um, Paul appeals to Caesar, and he makes his way to, to Rome uh, to face this trial before Caesar. And en route there, he has a shipwreck. <laughs> now, given what was prayed earlier, I think it's interesting to note just this catalytic event that sets this chain in motion was Paul's ethnic solidarity with the believer in Christ of a different culture. And it's just interesting to, to signal that out, that when you stand with people around the gospel, um, sometimes that has uh, generative effects that we're not anticipating. But the point is that Paul finds himself here in, um, in Rome by a totally different means uh, than he probably, than, certainly than he imagined. And it's a great example of the way that God takes a situation that isn't going the way you anticipate and does something from it that you would have never imagined. And so there Paul finds himself, but look what happens when he's in this uh, confinement, the situation of house arrest. He is given an opportunity to proclaim the kingdom, verse 31, and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to welcome him, he's able to welcome people to see him. This is actually, at this point in Paul's ministry, probably a great mercy of God to Paul. As one who ran around all the time and stayed busy, we can relate to that in New York. And here God situates Paul in one spot and says, you're going to stay there and the people are going to come to you. Um, and he receives people for two years like this. And I, and, and I think as I look at this, it seems to be indeed a mercy of God. We think of the, the difficult providences in our lives sometimes and we the, the lost opportunity. Paul was an ambitious person in a healthy way. And I could see him being in Rome desiring to go to the latest and greatest place. Uh, just like he did in Athens, to preach the gospel and to teach. And he stuck there instead under house arrest. But indeed, I think this is probably a mercy to Paul um, to provide him rest and focus uh, in this time. So people are coming to Paul, which is wonderful. Um, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's teaching about Lord Jesus Christ. And he's able to do it with all boldness and out hindrance. So in this providential situation, he is actually unhindered, and there's a sense in which Paul is also protected from opposition because he's actually under house arrest, right? So he's actually under guard. Uh, the guard themselves will hear the gospel also. So you have representatives of the state brought into the hearing of the gospel, and you have people who never would have signed up to come to church hearing time and time again the things that Paul is teaching. Incredible provision. And then lastly, there are a number of books of the Bible that came from this Roman imprisonment. This time when Paul is here um, is a time in which he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. Incredibly productive time in Paul's life. You see, the point is, uh, God's providence is amazing because when things are unraveling, going differently than you would expect, God nevertheless is at work doing something that will eventually be different than you ever imagined but all the better, the better for his kingdom, the better for you. Um, and this is the mystery and the comfort of the providence of God. So that's a bit about the providence of God. Then think about the kingdom of God, because 
the providence of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. We prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so God is moving all things toward the advancement of his kingdom, and God's kingdom is his spiritual reign over the earth. That God reigns over all things. Some acknowledge his reign, some do not. But God's kingdom advances, especially with the acknowledgement of his reign. And when you think about the, the kingdom advancing here, we've already mentioned some of the ways in which the corporate nature of the kingdom of God was advancing here in Paul's life, and that he actually produced writings to build up other churches outside of Rome while he's there in Rome. And I think about what happened, and uh, what is still ongoing, happening uh, with COVID-19 and its aftermath. You know, that was in New York City, uh, where we experienced COVID-19 in the most severe sort of way. Um, it was certainly something none of us would have ever signed up for or invited into our lives. When we came to New York City in 2019, New York City was thriving. Safest city in the world. Um, best place to live in the world. Um, uh, and our family landed here on the ground and things just kind of fell into place for us. And we were told by other people that your family seems to do really well in New York. Uh, you know, we, we, heard, we, we said a prayer earlier for someone in making school selection. Uh, so school options developed well for our children. Uh, the place where we led, were led to live initially ended up being a good situation. All sorts of things just fell into place for us. Uh, working at the seminary was great. Everything was going great. And then I remember, I, I remember like it was yesterday, reading an article in Newsweek Online about an Italian hospital. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. And, and this person from Italy said, I look at the United States and I feel like I'm watching a horror movie that I've watched before. And I'm looking at the victim and they don't know who's coming from around the corner. And I remember thinking to myself, it can't be that bad. I just can't imagine this. I mean, how, we're fine. We're just like, she's talking about like in a number of weeks, uh, this is going to be a, a, a catastrophic type of event. It's just hard. I mean, I'm believing the credibility of the person, but it's hard to wrap my mind around it. And, you know, and within six weeks, uh, deaths are skyrocketing in New York. And it was literally an apocalyptic situation. We live less than half a mile from NYU. And you could, you just, the, the, the death of human beings was just palpable uh, in, in the air. It's a terrible, terrible situation. And we still don't know what God is going to bring forth from that situation. But one of the things that I'm starting to hear now and began to hear about midway through the pandemic is in the midst of all the difficulties and all the very hard situations of the churches, we think about the corporate advancement of God's kingdom. There has also been a greater coming together, uh, a greater unity among different sectors of the body of Christ, a greater sharing of resources, and some wonderful stories um, that have emerged of how God has impacted the church and, and how did God did glorify himself in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. And that's still unfolding. We don't know what is on the other side of COVID-19 yet for us in New York. But we can be confident that 
though things seem to be falling apart, they never are because God has them in his hands and he is working something from them. So God's kingdom outward corporate dimension, it's even a global dimension as well as as a local dimension where he's building up his church and advancing his purposes. But it also has a deeply personal dimension as well. When you pray, thy kingdom come, your will be done, you're not only praying for something to happen out there, but you're also praying for God, the ministry of his Holy Spirit, to bring the influence of the Spirit to bear more and more on your life to where you are more and more conformed to Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful verse that speaks about this reality in Paul's letter to the Roman church. Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you hear this language of heirs? Three times. The children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God, heirs with Christ. Who is an heir? Royalty. Royalty, and who has? what is royalty associated with? What, what do you have to have? If you're royal and you have no kingdom, you're sort of pseudo-royal. You're royal in your own mind. But we are actually heirs of a kingdom. Children of God means that we, in a sense, reign with God, not in a triumphant, self-serving sort of sense, but meaning that we are bound up with God's own purposes in history. And as he advances his kingdom and brings it to full consummation, we can have confidence that through all the twists and turns, personally and corporately, that this work is going to be brought to fruition. And indeed, we will call Jesus not only Lord, but brother. One of the most amazing things about Christianity is that the God whom we worship, the second person of the Trinity, invites us also to call him brother, our elder brother. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So Romans 8.16 is a verse about our experience of participation in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit bears when we are suffering. As Paul is in this home, no doubt, as the, as the Spirit is inspiring him to write the scripture, also the Spirit bearing witness that in this situation, he is God's child. And especially the Spirit provides strength for suffering. Because one of the things that God does in his providence is he allows us to pass into deep sufferings not to punish us. Ironically, the scripture says that people who never suffer may be being judged by God because they're not being awakened to their own need for God. But God brings into situations of suffering not to punish us, punish us, but that we may share with Christ in sufferings, that we may learn more how to be like Jesus in the midst of that suffering as God advances his kingdom, using his great providence to those ends. You know, we think about Jesus himself. There's, there's a difference, there are many differences between Jesus and us. But when it comes to suffering, there is this one difference I want to consider this morning. Most of us 
come into situations we did not anticipate that are difficult. Most of us do not go headlong into a situation of great suffering or difficulty or trial or something that we're going to find personally unsettling or confusing. I mean, if you do that as a routine and an intention, you need a special help <laughs> and, and seek help, right? But that's not normal to seek that out. But Jesus did that. Jesus went from a place of power and complete control and exaltation as a second person of the Trinity. And he assumed a human nature, a true body and a reasonable soul. And in terms of place, Jesus forsook a place of peace and harmony and as the writer of the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 13, 12, it says, So Jesus suffered outside the gate. Speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, crucifixion, which happens at a trash heap, a trash pile among criminals outside the city, the least desirable, a place of condemnation and of filth. And Jesus goes there intentionally to that place of dislocation, disorientation, and unraveling to bear the judgment of God. The scripture says in order to sanctify, that is that you may have the Holy Spirit and be made new for God through his own blood. Jesus goes headlong into this suffering so that you can gain fellowship with him through the Spirit in the midst of your suffering. It's a wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, that story about um, one of my children, it turned out well in the end. We didn't know how that would turn out. And there are many tears at the time, um, many, many tears and uh, deep anxiety also a deep sense of comfort, but it was a very hard time. But in 2018, we came into the city, and at that point, uh, his health had declined to the point where we were sort of like, hey, how do you want to live your life? We don't know what your life will hold for you, so you choose how you want to live your life. And he said, I really want to go to school no matter what, no matter if it's bad for my health or, or what. So we marched down to... Um, a school in the city ended up being a really great uh, school, and we were able to to get consideration there. You know, we moved in June. One of the things we weren't aware of when we moved to New York City is the worst possible time to move with regard to school options. So, you know, we call around to a bunch of places that all the schools are full, but through the work of a social worker at the hospital and, and some advocacy, he was able to get a hearing at a really great school in the city. And we sit there with his vice principal. And he looks at his transcript. This little pathetic Holmes teaching transcript that I made up. I mean, I tried to make the fonts nice and make it look as official as I could, right? But it's, it's from home. And this is New York City schools. And he says, well, this is really interesting. It's really interesting. Because most children cannot transfer into our school easily. 
because we have two global history requirements. What's interesting about that was years earlier, when we were changing his courses around in chaos, we made a mistake. And we gave him two global history courses. Two courses. And so, unbeknownst to us, when we come to New York City, in one of the most stringent school systems in the country when it comes to requirements, and we see, years ago, God was doing something we never anticipated. Incredible. Incredible. It's a great mercy of God if you can see the way that he's working. You can pray for that if you're going through a hard time. You can pray that God show you how he's working. But even if he doesn't show you, you can still know that he is. And in the end, it's all going to work out for your good, for his glory, and for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this great truth that you are God who exercises a holy, wise, and powerful providence over all your creatures and all their actions. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that because of you, that providence is always mixed with love and grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.